Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Meanwhile the Kingdom. It's based upon the lectionary readings for June 17, 2018. For the past year, my son has suffered from chronic migraines. He's missed months of school, and so far no medical intervention we've tried has provided lasting relief. This week, the pain spiked to a point he just couldn't bear, and he had to be hospitalized. As I've sat at his bedside in the pediatric ward over the past couple of days, I've asked God all the anguished questions we ask when our loved ones are in pain. Why? To what end? Why won't you heal? When will this end? Where are you? It's one of those weeks, honestly, when the lectionary feels pointless. Right at this moment, I couldn't care less what St. Mark's Gospel has to say about Jesus or his parables or the kingdom of God or anything else. I just want my son's headaches to go away. It's during times like this when I realize how pinched and narrow my spiritual imagination continues to be. As it turns out, I have a very specific and very self-serving idea of what God's kingdom and his blessing should look like, and I always take offense when reality comes along and challenges that pristine ideal. Jesus must have an infuriating sense of humor, though, because the two parables that make up this week's gospel reading do precisely that. They take my ideal and turn it upside down. But what is my ideal? If I'm honest, I have to describe it this way. In my perfect version of God's kingdom, I do A and God does B, predictably and always. As in, I pray for my son's healing and God heals him immediately. In my perfect version, I understand what the heck is going on, at least 95% of the time. In other words, when life gets hard, God at least provides decent answers to the why questions, instead of leaving me to wallow in the unknown. In my perfect version, God makes grand gestures and does spectacular things. The kingdom isn't commonplace and ordinary. It's straightforwardly miraculous. And to my perfect version, there are clear, inviolable boundaries of what is good and what is bad, who is in and who is out. But my ideal is not God's. In the first parable Jesus tells in this week's lection, a gardener scatters seed on the ground and then goes to sleep. The seeds fend for themselves, or, as St. Mark puts it, the earth produces of itself. And when the grain is ripe, the gardener harvests it. In the second parable, someone sows a tiny mustard seed on the ground, and it grows into a gigantic bush, large enough to offer bird shelter in its branches. Both of these parables, insofar as they're meant to show us what the kingdom of God looks like, are ridiculous. They're big cosmic jokes. As is the case with all of Jesus' parables, these are intended to stretch our imaginations far beyond any place we take them on our own. Not to keep us comfortable and complacent, but to prod and provoke us into wholly different ways of perceiving and relating to what is sacred. What's the kingdom of God like? Are you sure you want to know? Okay, brace yourself. The kingdom of God is like a sleeping gardener, mysterious soil, an invasive weed, and a nuisance flock of birds. Let's start with the sleeping gardener. If you're any type of perfectionist, workaholic, neat freak, or compulsive worrier, If you insist on being in control, if you believe in work before play, if you practice vigilance in all things, then you already know what's wrong with this first parable. Good gardeners don't toss a bunch of seeds into their backyard and then snooze away the growing season. They plan and plod and hover. They make neat little rows in well-manicured beds. They watch over their seedlings. They keep a wary eye on the weather. They protect their gardens from birds, rabbits, and deer. From early spring until harvest, they water, they fertilize, they prune, they weed, and they worry. But the gardener in Jesus' parable, he scatters and sleeps. He doesn't slog, he doesn't micromanage, he doesn't second-guess. 
Like a well-loved infant in his mother's arms, the gardener enjoys the deep rest that comes from trusting in a process much older, larger, and more reliable than himself. In this story of the kingdom, it is not our striving, our piety, our doctrinal purity, or our impressive prayers that cause us to grow and thrive in God's garden. It is God's grace alone. Which brings us to the mysterious soil, or as St. Mark describes it, the automatic earth. According to Jesus' parable, the kingdom of God is both fecund and hidden, both generous and mysterious. It works its fertile magic underground, deep beneath the surfaces we can see and quantify. Yes, it eventually brings forth all kinds of abundance, but the process of that bringing forth, all the nitty-gritty details we long to dissect and micromanage, is hidden from our eyes. If anything, we live in the time between the planting and the harvest. We look outside full of hope and see only dark soil, only vast expanses of please God, maybe. As Annie Dillard puts it so beautifully, our life is a faint tracing on the surface of mystery. In Jesus' second parable, a sower seeds a mustard a sower sows a mustard seed in the ground. The joke here is that only that mustard seeds are tiny, but that the people in Jesus' day didn't plant mustard seeds. Mustard was a weed, an obnoxious, spindly, stubborn weed at that. If a first-century gardener in Palestine were foolish enough to plant it, it would quickly take over his plot of land, dropping seeds everywhere and breaking down all barriers of separation between itself and the other plants in the garden. Imagine a gardener today planting kudzu or dandelions or broomweed. These are ordinary, boring, nuisance plants we try to get rid of, not plants we'd ever cultivate on purpose. Mustard, moreover, is not a plant that grows with any stateliness or beauty. It's nothing like a cedar or a giant sequoia or even a well-tended rosebush. It grows like a weed and it looks like one. So what is Jesus saying when he describes the sacred and the holy as a tiny, insignificant mustard seed? What does it mean to take an invasive, unwanted, spindly plant, a plant we'd sooner discard than sow, and make it the very heart, the very structural center of God's kingdom? Who and what counts in God's economy? What is beautiful? Who matters? Where do we see the sacred? The last image in the set of parables is that of nesting birds finding shade in the branches of the mustard plant. It's a pretty image on its face, but it too, as it turns out, is a joke. Who wants birds taking up residence in their gardens? Birds eat seeds. They can wreak havoc in a cornfield. Birds are why farmers erect scarecrows. But Jesus isn't a scarecrow kind of gardener. Why? Because the kingdom of God is all about welcoming the unwelcome, sheltering the unwanted, practicing radical inclusion. The garden of God doesn't exist for itself. It exists to offer hospitality to anyone and everyone the world deems unworthy. It exists to attract and to house the very people we'd rather shun. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It isn't what I thought it would be. It doesn't operate the way I think it should. This is good news, but it isn't always easy news. The truth is, it hurts to surrender my imagination to God's expansive work. It hurts to trust, to accept mystery, to seek God in the commonplace, and to embrace the unwanted thing as beloved. For me this week, the challenge is to find God's kingdom in the midst of my son's pain, to trust and to wait for the abundance that lies in deep darkness. For all of us, regardless of our circumstances, the challenge remains to scatter seed and rest in God's grace, to embrace even the weeds and allow them to become havens of rest. May God help us to do these hard and beautiful things. May God help us to say and to live these words with all sincerity. Thy kingdom come. For books this week, Jan reviews Sing, Unburied Sing by Justman Ward. Justman Ward's newest novel is set in remote Mississippi, where cell phone coverage is sketchy, 
Home remedies are still used, a murder is construed as a hunting accident, and where the troubled ghosts of its racist history haunt a family. A 13-year-old boy named Jojo begins a story by noting that it's his birthday, but that there is no happiness here. That's an understatement. Jojo is a chief caregiver to his three-year-old sister Kayla. That's because his black mother, Leonie, who never finished high school, is mostly gone, and more gone than here, working the night shift at a backwoods bar and snorting meth. His white father, Michael, has just been released from three years in the parchment prison, but that fills Jojo with dread rather than any happiness. It's no wonder that he distances himself from his parents by using their first names. Michael's racist father, Big Joseph, is the man who ain't once ever said Jojo's name or even spoken to Leonie. Leonie's mother is dying of cancer in the house. Amidst all of this pain and sorrow is Jojo's grandfather, Pop, who is a force for good and love and who long ago also did time in Parchman. Sometimes the, don't, don't, sometimes the world don't give you what you need, observes Leonie, no matter how hard you look. Sometimes it withholds. In one drug-addled dream, she imagines being marooned in a deflating raft, shark circling her entire family. She's trying to save everybody, but she realizes that she is failing them. We are all drowning. In the words of one of the two ghosts that haunts this beleaguered family, watching this family grabs me inside, twists and pulls tight. It hurts. It hurts so much, I can't look at it. So I don't. For movies this week, Dan reviews Chasing Coral. This 90-minute Netflix original documentary debuted at the Sundance Film Festival, where it won an audience award, and was then subsequently streamed on the Netflix site. The movie takes its inspiration from director Jeff Orlowski's 2012 film called Chasing Ice, in which teams place 25 time-lapse cameras among the glaciers of Iceland, Greenland, Alaska, and Montana. The before and after photos are shocking. The same is true here. For his new film, Orlowski gathered scientists, divers, and photographers to document the radical changes taking place among coral reefs all over the world. In particular, they captured before and after photos of coral bleaching, a sure sign of marine death that's caused by a rise in the water temperature due to global warming. It's predicted that in about 30 years, we will have lost half of all the world's coral reefs, due entirely to the way humanity has decided to live. The images in this film are both exotic and tragic. And finally, for poetry this week, The Beginning of Wisdom by Denise Levertov. You have brought me so far. I know so much. Names, verbs, images. My mind overflows, a drawer that can't close. Unscathed among the tortured, ignorant parchment, uninscribed, light strokes only, or a scribe tried out a pen. I am so small, a speck of dust moving across the huge world, the world a speck of dust in the universe. Are you holding the universe? You hold on to my smallness. How do you grasp it? How does it not slip away? I know so little. You have brought me so far. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June 17th, 2017. I'm Debbie Thomas.